Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Tracy B. Wilson. And I'm Holly Fry. And Holly, so we don't normally start out with corrections very first thing, but I need to do that today. <laughs> okay. So you remember our, our pig war episode where we talked about, uh, you know, a war that almost happened because of a pig? I do. I accidentally said in that episode that uh, somebody traveled via the Panama Canal to get out to that part of the world. Yeah. So that was wrong. It was a little whoopsie-daisy. That was, yes, that was my source said via Panama, and my dumb brain just filled in the part that says canal. There, The canal did not exist yet. I'm very sorry. Please stop emailing <laughs> us about it. <laughs> Here's what I'm saying. If that's the worst crime you commit, I think we're in pretty good hands. I know. I think this is maybe like, that was maybe the second hugest, most email generating error in the podcast. And I'm not even going to mention what the other one was because we haven't gotten a message about it in maybe six months. And it's from years before we came on the show. Like we're still getting corrections about it when we started. So uh, yes, I am so sorry that I auto completed something that was not built yet in the world. Uh, And I'll try not to do that again. And today we're going to talk about something completely different. Yes. So uh, just not long ago at all, we asked on Facebook for people to tell us some ideas of things that they wanted to talk about that were events in history, because we have lots of episodes about people and some people prefer events. And for whatever reason, whenever I sit down to do the podcast, my brain churns up people a lot of Mine the time. Mine does too. So weird. Even if I try to pick a subject that is not a people and is an event... Eventually, sort of as the the notes and the plotline are kind of playing out as I'm doing my research, it almost always ends up focusing on one particular person that was part of it. I don't know if that's just some sort of um, brain situation that it it wants to focus on one smaller piece or what, but it happens. It's tricky to pick an event and not do that. For me yeah, anyway. well, conveniently, the event that people asked for the absolute most was the wreck of the Batavia. <laughs> which at that point we had already recorded and edited and it was just waiting to be published. So that worked out really well. We uh, delivered so quickly without meeting to. <laughs> I know. We had a couple of other things that were um, maybe not quite as much as heavily requested at that one, but extremely frequently requested. And one of them is what we're going to talk about today, which is the so-called Spanish flu epidemic of 1918 and 1919. So somewhere between 20 million and 50 million people died of the flu during this epidemic, which started just as World War I was winding down. So a lot of our past episodes that are about diseases are really about the people who saved us from them. So like our smallpox episode is all about Edward Jenner and his smallpox vaccine. And our tuberculosis episode is all about Selman Waxman and Albert Schatz and the discovery of streptomycin, which was the first antibiotic that could treat it. Uh, Sarah and Dublina's episode called Polio, the Dread Disease, is also largely about the vaccines that have nearly eradicated polio from the world. But the story of the flu pandemic of 18, 1918 and 1919 is not that. It has a lot more in common with our episode about Encephalitis Lethargica, which also happened right about the same time. Uh, the flu epidemic is probably why a disease that was as crazy and terrifying as as encephalitis lethargica is not a better known uh, event in medical history 
the flu just completely overshadowed it because it killed so many people. But like encephalitis lethargica, the pandemic flu came and it went. Nobody could treat it. Nobody could cure it. Uh, a fifth of the people in the world got the flu that during the pandemic. And uh, usually, while the typical flu is uh, hardest on elderly people and the very young, this time it was deadliest among 20 to 40-year-olds. And in that age bracket, it was so lethal that in the United States, for example, the average life expectancy dropped by more than a decade just as a result of how many people died from the flu. Which is scary. I feel like I should confess that I have this completely unfounded fear that I will die of a random flu. This is also why we are doing the episode now (laughs) and not at the height of flu season. Yeah, as we're exiting flu season. I mean, every time I get the flu, my thought is this is the one that's going to take me down. So um, hopefully I won't have any panic attacks while we record. Yeah, I will keep my fingers crossed for that. So uh, before we start, though, we should talk a little bit about what the world of medicine and what public health were like in 1918. So in many parts of the world, nations hadn't really standardized or regulated what was required for a person to call themselves a doctor. So people practiced medicine with all kinds of different credentials or with no credentials and patent medicines, which really didn't have any medical value and were mostly alcohol and laudanum most of the time, were still pretty prevalent. There was a lot of stuff floating around that was just not legitimate for treating anything. And at this point, Alexander Fleming had not yet discovered penicillin. That was still a decade away. And its use as a drug was even further out than that. So penicillin wouldn't have helped fight the flu since influenza is a virus and penicillin kills bacteria. Uh, but it might have helped some of the people who wound up with bacterial pneumonia after contracting the flu. And this is more just to sort of point out a milestone of where we were in medicine when this flu epidemic was happening. Yeah. So in spite of some of these things that we think of as basics today, like uh, requiring people to be trained to call themselves doctors and, and uh, antibiotics and things like that, Things had really advanced a lot in the world of medicine over the past century before the epidemic started. Most parts of the industrialized world at this point had uh, understood and accepted the germ theory of disease. So at this point, pretty much everyone was on the same page in most places uh, that germs cause disease. And doctors had also figured out exactly which germs caused a number of diseases, including tuberculosis, malaria and cholera. The idea of a reportable disease or one so dangerous that all cases of it needed to be reported to government authorities also existed. But even though there had been another serious flu epidemic a couple of decades before, influenza wasn't really reportable in most places until this particular epidemic had really gotten dire. And at that point, it was too late uh, for warning the government to do really any good. Yeah, what they already knew there was a big problem <laughs> by the time people were able to start saying, hey, there is a big problem. Vaccines also existed. There was a vaccine for smallpox. There was a vaccine for rabies. Other vaccines were also in the works. And people really thought as the as the ec- epidemic got going that a vaccine for the flu was just around the corner. Uh, as we talked about in the encephalitis lethargica episode, though, figuring out how to make a vaccine for a disease when you don't know what's causing the disease is really hard. And not only did doctors not know what was causing the flu, they also had it pinned on a completely different germ. They thought it had a totally different cause than it really did have. 
So at the start of the epidemic, the purported culprit for the flu was a bacterium that had been named Pfeiffer's bacillus after its discoverer, who was a German scientist named Robert Friedrich Pfeiffer. And he made the connection between his bacillus and the flu, but he hadn't really proved this connection. And as the epidemic wore on, it became abundantly clear that Pfeiffer was wrong. Uh, the bacillus he discovered was not present in sick patients, and deliberately exposing people to it didn't give them the flu. So even though an international team was dedicated to trying to create a vaccine, none of their work proved effective. And at first, uh, they were after the wrong germ, and then they didn't have a good starting point. So... All of this together combines to mean that when the flu turned really deadly in 1918, there was not much that legitimate doctors could do for their patients besides to keep them in bed and keep them as fed and hydrated and comfortable as possible. The most most of the things that had any efficacy at all were about prevention, which basically involved keeping the sick people quarantined and trying to educate people about how to keep themselves from being exposed. And doctors knew that the flu was spread by coughing and sneezing, so they gave the common sense advice about covering your nose and mouth and staying away from people who were coughing and sneezing. Oh, and also telling people not to spit on the ground. So don't spit on the ground, please. (laughs) (laughs) You know, there are debates over whether that's uh, a civil way to behave in general, but uh, sick people don't spit on the ground. No, no spitting. (laughs) It's gross and it spreads illness. So there were also a lot of public health campaigns that were trying to get people who were sick to stay at home, which probably sounds kind of familiar to when there's a big flu outbreak today. Uh, they especially were trying to educate uh, people who were sick to get them to stay away from crowds. And businesses got in on the deal, too, trying to warn people who were ill to go home. So a sign at one theater in Chicago read... Influenza, frequently complicated with pneumonia, is prevalent at this time throughout America. This theater is cooperating with the Department of Health. You must do the same. If you have a cold and are coughing and sneezing, do not enter this theater. And then in all capital letters, go home and go to bed until you are well. That seems wise. Not all of the advice on prevention was sound, though. Many people in public health recommended that people wear masks, and some places even required that masks be worn by law. But this was, in fact, not effective. Yeah, masks are kind of effective when there's bacteria involved, but when it's a virus, the viruses are just too small. Uh, before we get into how this disease spread and where it was first reported and all that, let's take a brief moment for a word from a sponsor. So uh, back to exactly what happened when this disease made its debut. The first reports of flu in this pandemic came in May of 1918 in Europe. And the first reports were among soldiers. So large numbers of otherwise healthy young troops uh, were just becoming really ill with flu-like symptoms. So they were getting coughing and sneezing and body aches. Most of them were recovering within a few days. And apart from the fact that this was disrupting a war, it was not a really big deal. But then the disease jumped from the military to civilians in Europe. And from there, it spread to most of the rest of the world over the course of just a couple of months. Uh, It was still a relatively mild disease, much like the seasonal flu most of us have had at one time or another in our lives. It wasn't pleasant, but it was also not especially alarming. This disease faded away later in the summer, but then in August it mutated and became 
really a lot more serious. This terrifying strain of the flu was reported in Boston, Massachusetts, in the United States, in Freetown, Sierra Leone, uh, and in Brest, France. And these were all port cities, so it's possible that the disease had spread between the three of them on ships. And this time, along with the typical flu symptoms of coughing and sneezing and a sore throat and body aches, the disease caused very high fevers between 102 and 105 degrees Fahrenheit. Patients felt exhausted and their eyes became bloodshot. And some even had severe nosebleeds or gastrointestinal problems. Even though this flu was a lot worse from the flu that had spread earlier in the spring, a lot of people still recovered. But a pretty substantial portion of people developed a devastating pneumonia, which was caused by one of a number of bacteria. It was a secondary infection that was like a complication of this flu. Their lungs filled up with fluid and started hemorrhaging, and death often came alarmingly fast, with people going from sitting upright and talking to being dead within hours. See, these are the stories that make me paranoid about the flu. This is, uh, this is why I read an article when I was working on this about that episode of the, about the flu pandemic that was in the, uh, the Downton Abbey TV show. Yeah. So spoiler alert for Downton Abbey. It similarly, uh, makes some people in the household really, really sick. And it has one, there's one particular character who goes from being, she's sick, she's has, she has the flu. She goes from, I'm sick with the flu to I'm dead, uh, in an episode, which is not uncommon for TV, but also was really how it worked. Uh, so when doctors performed autopsies on these patients who had died, they found that their lungs and their spleens were just grotesquely swollen. So a description from a doctor who was stationed at Fort Devens outside Boston uh, from that September. Here's what he had to say. This epidemic started about four weeks ago and has developed so rapidly that the camp is demoralized and all ordinary work is held up till it has passed. These men start with what appears to be an ordinary attack of La Gripa or influenza. And when brought to the hosp, so abbreviation for hospital, when brought to the hosp, they very rapidly develop the most viscous type of pneumonia that has ever been seen. Two hours after admission, they have the mahogany spots over the cheekbones. And a few hours later, you can begin to see the cyanosis extending from their ears and spreading all over the face until it is hard to distinguish the colored men from the white. It is only a matter of a few hours then until death comes. And it is simply a struggle for air until they suffocate. It is horrible. One can stand to see one, two, or twenty men die, but to see these poor devils dropping like flies sort of gets on your nerves. We have been averaging about 100 deaths per day and and still keeping it up. There is no doubt in my mind that there is a new mixed infection here, but what I don't know. And from the port cities where this really started sort of blossoming outward, the disease spread really rapidly. Over the next couple of months, it spread all over the world. And then it, too, faded out, although another mild wave of flu went on uh, around early 1919. It's hard to pinpoint exactly how many people died during the pandemic. Medical records from the era were already kind of sketchy even before you threw a devastating pandemic into the mix to make things even more chaotic. Doctors often misdiagnosed milder forms of the flu as common colds, and sometimes they diagnosed this much more serious version as another disease entirely like cholera. The disease also moved so quickly that public health agencies could not accurately track what was happening. 
So in the decade after the pandemic, the estimated global death toll was 20 million people. But modern researchers who've gone back and tried to reconstruct things have marked the number as much higher, between 30 million and 50 million people died worldwide. So that sort of leaves us to wonder why this particular flu was so incredibly bad. Uh, we know that the war often takes a giant share of the blame for the spread of the flu pandemic. And it's definitely true that the flu followed the troops and that it spread like wildfire among soldiers in close quarters and that soldiers returning home from the war brought the disease with them. Battlefield injuries and other illnesses also made it harder for soldiers to fight off the flu. So camps uh, for the war were basically like flu incubators. It's also definitely true that the war meant that a lot of the medical personnel who were trained at the time had been tasked to help with the military. And so they were not available to help the civilian population as the epidemic started to spread. Communities in more rural areas asked their various government organizations to please send doctors and nurses to help them. But often the few who weren't part of the war effort fell victim to the flu themselves while they were traveling to their patients. But it really it wasn't just about the soldiers or the effects of the war. Even if the epidemic had happened during peacetime, hospitals just wouldn't have been able to handle the influx of so many patients. Temporary hospitals had to be built in churches and schools and community centers, and some hospitals even expanded their capacity by housing their patients in tents on hospital grounds. And the way of life uh, in the late 19-teens also played a big role in the spread of the disease. Cars were not in widespread use at this point. And many larger cities around the world had developed extensive public transportation systems. So that was bringing sick and healthy people into contact with each other on streetcars, on trolleys, and on subways. In uh, several parts of the world, people were also traveling really extensively by train. So, for example, in the United States, train travel peaked in 1920, just a year after the epidemic. And these long trips in close quarters similarly uh, fueled the spread of the disease. Some of the most popular leisure activities in 1918 and 1919 also drew big crowds. So movie theaters had become affordable. They were extremely popular and they were very widespread. They were everywhere. And that made them a hotbed of infection. Uh, There were also dance halls and amusement parks. And in many places, governments restricted activities or shut them down entirely to try to keep people from gathering. Some towns even canceled school uh, and canceled church services and universities suspended their operations in an effort to just sort of stop this spread that was going on everywhere people gathered. Cities also shut down or restricted their public transportation systems that were at this point so popular. And drivers, either with their city's authority or acting on their own, would refuse to carry passengers who weren't wearing masks or who they suspected to be ill. And although all of these factors have been about industry, people in rural and developing areas were not spared in the least. Uh, in the United States, the Eskimo population was disproportionately hit with the flu. And in rural and developing areas, people were left with no medical care and very little reliable information about what was actually going on or what they could possibly do about it. The war, which took so much of the blame for spreading the disease, wound up ultimately killing 16 million people, but that number was just dwarfed by the total death toll from the flu. So before we talk about the aftermath of of this devastation, let's take another brief moment and have a word from a sponsor. So to to get back to the aftermath of this 
this flu pandemic. On top of the astounding loss of life, the flu pandemic had a lot of economic and social impacts. So many people were sick that public and municipal services completely shut down because there was nobody left to do the work. Garbage was piling up in the streets uh, in cities where sanitation workers were particularly hard hit. Telegraph systems failed when there were not enough operators that were healthy enough to come into work. Kind of reminds me of stories about the Black Death and how so many people would die that there was no one left to bury them. Yeah. Small businesses went bankrupt because their proprietors became too sick to work or they died. And then insurance companies also went bankrupt because their incoming claims skyrocketed. If trains were found to have sick people aboard, stations along the routes would actually forbid them from stopping. So even the ones that were working were subject to some, you know, limitation. Yeah, and then that trickled down with its own effects of people not being able to get to where they needed to go. The public was also often really genuinely panicked, and governments took steps to try to maintain calm, including trying to filter or suppress information about the pandemic. So the telegraph was one of the primary modes of communication at this point. The telephone had been invented, but it was still extremely expensive, not at all prevalent in places that weren't very affluent or places that were rural. So a lot of people were relying completely on the telegraph to communicate with people over long distances. Telegraphs ran on a network of human operators who were privy to everything that was being transmitted because they were the ones that were sending out the codes. So in the United States, for example, the Public Health Service gave all of its officers code books to use anytime they were sending information about the pandemic. So the the telegraph operators wouldn't be able to figure out what was being said and go spread alarm among other people. And once it was all over, perhaps because it had been so terrifying and perhaps because it came on the heels of a war that had stretched on for years, most people really just seemed to want to forget that the whole thing had happened. And so for a long time, research into its cause and its progression were actually quite minimal. In October of 1918, so as the epidemic was still going on, uh, doctors began to correctly theorize that the flu was caused by a virus and not a bacteria. But influenza A virus wasn't isolated until many years later in 1933. Influenza A is what causes most epidemic strains of the flu. Two other types, influenza B and C, weren't isolated until 1940 and 1950, respectively. And the vaccine didn't come around until 1944. And because the flu mutates every year, the vaccine has to change every year to keep up. This is why the vaccine provides better protection some years than others, because some years it's just a better match to what's actually happening, and it keeps up with the mutation. Right. Other, although less deadly, pandemics also followed in 1957 and 58, and then again in 1968 and 69. There was also the H1N1 swine flu pandemic in 2009 and 2010, Other flu seasons have also had the potential to turn into pandemic flu, but ultimately didn't. Scientists continue to study the 1918-1919 pandemic to try to figure out exactly what made it so bad in the hopes of preventing another uh, similar situation in the future. They've done things like tried to reverse engineer the genes of the 1918 version of the flu and try to figure out what modern drugs might be effective against something like that. In 2005, researchers sequenced the genome of the flu virus. They used samples from the body of an Inuit woman who had been buried in a mass grave after the flu killed 90% of her village. 
And according to this research, the flu came from an H1N1 avian virus. The sort of scientific verdict since then has flipped back and forth a little about whether the pandemic flu came from an avian or a swine origin. And then in February of 2014, uh, an article published in the journal Nature put the primary theory back to being an avian origin. In January of 2014, historian Mark Humphreys published a paper in the journal War in History, theorizing a potential cause for the pandemic. During World War I, 96,000 Chinese workers were transported by rail to work on the Western Front. He found medical records describing a respiratory virus that broke out in southern China the year before, one that Chinese officials later said was identical to the so-called Spanish flu. About 3,000 of the workers were quarantined with flu-like symptoms. Racist doctors called the sick workers lazy and then sent them back to their camps. And at the time of his paper's publication, he was waiting on test results from samples for confirmation. Yeah, this is one of those things where, at least according to everything that I was reading about it, uh, tests should confirm this theory. But at this point, a lot of people are like, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, so... Obviously, that means that this had nothing really to do with Spain. We've left this for the end. That The name Spanish flu only came about because Spain's press was uncensored at the time. So most of the earliest information that people got about the illness came from Spain, where uh, people weren't restricting the information that was published about it. So it really got its unfortunate uh, association just by... The fact that they were the most informative. They were, yeah, what they, was going on. They were being the, the least obfuscating about what was happening. So, yeah, it, this whole story is really alarming to me. I have, or I had, when I was young, I had a living great-grandfather who was born in 1900. And so things didn't seem like they were in the distant past to me until they had happened before he had been born. So when I was little, the fact that this whole thing had happened while he was alive, I was like, this could happen again right now, because yeah. that is in the extremely recent past. <laughs> and now as an adult, I still think this could really happen again right now, but it's not because of like the state of medical knowledge. It's just because viruses can be terrifying. Yeah, like I said, I, I have a completely irrational level of fear of the flu. I, I don't know why. I don't know where that came from. It's just, it's irrational. Exercise caution. Wash your hands. I would say my level of fear of it is irrational. Okay, that, that maybe. Maybe you I know, can buy it's that. one of those things I, I won't overshare, but last week I had a brief visit from food poisoning and I immediately, my brain started whirling with the, oh my gosh, no, what if this is some really terrible version of the flu and I will be patient zero? It's irrational. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think the thing that's made me most afraid of, of illnesses like this is a game that I've played on the iPad called Plague Incorporated, where basically you try to make your plague kill everyone in the yeah. world. Uh, yeah. And like there's there are ways you can do it where it just basically spreads silently among everyone and then it turns completely deadly. And whenever I see that happen, I'm like, that that could happen. It could really happen. I like how your entertainment choices are reinforcing your fears. That's really good. Sometimes that's what happens. Yes. <laughs> Do you have listener mail? I do have listener mail. Uh, this listener mail is from Sarah, and she says, I love the podcast and have written before when you two were doing pop stuff. I really enjoyed your episode on foot binding and couldn't help but wonder if other cultures might view our Western custom of circumcision in the same light. 
I know it has a deep religious meaning for many people, but the typical surgery done in a hospital doesn't follow Jewish guidelines for circumcision. Babies, of course, don't remember the procedure and will heal better than adults choosing to undergo the operation, If it is, but it is still a cosmetic procedure that can't really be reversed, uh, and it's given without consent of the child. I know some men wish they weren't circumcised and feel they didn't get a say in the matter, and in recent years, many people have advocated against it. I personally haven't made up my mind about it, but there are strong arguments on both sides. Maybe if I have children, I will have to make a decision. It's still hard for me to think that I might permanently change a boy's body just because it is a cultural norm. I should point out that I don't believe circumcision is in any way as life-altering as the act of foot-binding, but that it is something for our society to consider. And then she sent some show ideas. So I think this was like one of the most uh, reasoned emails about circumcision that we got after the foot-binding episode. Yeah, it's a topic people feel very passionately about, and we got a lot of emails about it. We, a lot. And some of them were <laughs> extremely screamy at us. So <laughs> here is why. I can't, I'm not sure if it was you or me who said there's not really a modern equivalent of this in the West. Uh, but I think we both pretty much felt that and feel that when yeah. we were doing the episode. So here is why I did not put circumcision into the same category as foot binding. So uh, both of them are, they're performed or were, are or were performed on children without their consent. They are not medically uh, critical. There are some arguments about uh, medical benefits of circumcision, but it's like not something that, uh, it's an elective procedure. That's a good way to put it. Yeah. Um, And they do change a person's body but circumcision is not ingrained into uh, American culture the way that foot binding is. Like it, it was pretty much the thing to do with baby boys for many years. Uh, but that did not mean that baby boys who were not circumcised were ineligible to be married. Yeah, I mean, foot binding, we talked about it in the episode. If a family had chosen not to bind the feet of their daughter, they were sort of condemning her to a pretty rough life. Like, she would basically automatically be on one of the lowest rungs of society. Right. Um, There's also a lot of really contradictory uh, research about exactly what effect that circumcision does or does not have on, for example, a man's sexual health. Um, There are pros and cons in the the things that are like medical benefits, like it it appears that being circumcised lowers the risk of HIV trans- transmission. Um, like there are, there are arguments on both sides of that. Foot binding, on the other hand, has zero medical value at all whatsoever and is crippling. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, and we talked about in that episode that they they found that women that had had their feet bound later on in their in their older years had a, a higher instance of osteoporosis than women. Right. That did not. Yeah. And I think it's possible that a hundred years from now or 500 years from now or something like that, it's entirely possible that a culture will look back on circumcision and make the equation that, yes, it was just as bad uh, as as foot binding. But like we're not at that point in culture or history yet. Like there are some parallels, but I cannot at all say that they are equivalent well, and the other thing to consider is that unlike foot binding, whether or not a man is circumcised is not immediately obvious to passersby in the street. Right. Um, whereas women that were caught in that 
that middle ground that we talked about after foot binding had been outlawed and fallen out of favor, but still had their feet bound, people were taunting them and in some times assaulting them in the street uh, because they could obviously see that they were part of this older tradition that was now not in favor. Uh, yeah, whereas yeah. that would not be the case if circumcision suddenly were completely eradicated as a practice. Men that had sort of legacy circumcisions are not going to get taunted in the street because people will not know. Yeah, I I think to in my mind for something to be equivalent to uh to foot binding, it would have to be simultaneously crippling, performed on children without their consent, and so ingrained in a culture that that removing it from that culture would have all kinds of other ramifications. So a lot of the other suggestions that people wrote into us about things that they were like, well. What about women wearing high heel shoes that can deform their body like that is adults <laughs> making a choice themselves. Uh, and, you know, if you don't wear high heel shoes, that doesn't mean you're going to be socially outcast for the rest of your life. So it has to fit all of those things at the same time for me to say, OK, yeah, that would be a modern equivalent. Yeah. And I, I in us saying there's not a modern equivalent, it's not to diminish the discussion that people are having about issues like circumcision, but. It just, it doesn't meet those same criteria. Right. So, yes, if you would like to write to us about this or any other subject, we are at historypodcast at discovery.com. We're also on Facebook at facebook.com slash history and on Twitter at history. Our Tumblr is mistinhistory.tumblr.com and our Pinterest is pinterest.com slash history. We have a website of our very own where we are putting all of the podcast episodes and all of our show notes and uh, all of that, it is at mistinhistory.com. If you would like to learn more about what we've talked about today, you can go to our parent company's website, howstuffworks.com, and put the word flu in the search bar, and you will find how the flu works. You can do all of that and a whole lot more at our website, which is howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. Audible.com is the leading provider of downloadable digital audiobooks and spoken word entertainment. Audible has more than 100,000 titles to choose from to be downloaded to your iPod or MP3 player. Go to audiblepodcast.com slash history to get a free audiobook download of your choice when you sign up today.